So, Elaine, have you ever been to McSorley's in New York? I have not. Have you? Well, no, actually, but it claims to be the oldest Irish bar in New York, running sort of from the 1850s, though I think there's some questions over whether that's completely true. But the big thing about it is that it banned women until 1970, when it was legally forced to admit them. Wow, 1970. But I suppose that that idea of the the Irish pub, and there's so many of them all over the world, it kind of tells us about this this stereotype, this kind of stereotypical association between the Irish and drinking that's still, that's so prevalent today. Yeah, and there's a very long history, I suppose, that associates the Irish and alcohol both at home and abroad. And in today's podcast, that's what we're going to be looking at, the idea of of alcohol and our bad bridges. I need to get a drink for this one, so, so hold on a second. Men, women and children left everything they had known in Ireland and emigrated across the Atlantic to North America in search of the American dream. More than five and a half million of them migrated between 1838 and 1918. We know that women became nuns, domestic servants, teachers. We know that men built American cities and entered politics. Irish America is awash with stories of successful Irish migrants. But what about those who didn't find the American dream? What about the struggles along the way? What about the thousands of Irish who ended up in police stations, courts and prisons, suspected of criminal or deviant behaviour? Where do Irish women fit into the story? is the Bad Bridget podcast with Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormick, the podcast that goes behind the traditional emigrant success story to tell the hidden tales of women that history has chosen to forget. It shines a light on stories of crime and poverty, but also of survival, resistance and coping against the odds. These are the stories that help us understand the complex experience of migration, both in the past and today. And there's been a lot that's been written about the Irish and and alcohol and why they drank or drink. Um, People like Dermot Ferreta, Alice Major, Elizabeth Malcolm, Richard Stivers, Bradley Cadell, Victor Walsh and of course, Conor Reedy. And we have Connor Reedy here. So Connor has actually written a book, um, one of several books he has written, but he has written one on criminal drunkards. He's a mastermind behind Silverview Editing and he has agreed to talk to us. Um, so Connor, I wanted to ask you, first of all, did women drink in 19th century Ireland? Everybody drank in 19th century Ireland, Elaine. <laughs> and women certainly enjoyed their fair share of drink. Um, But the difference between women drinking and men drinking uh, was the reaction of society and the reaction of polite society to the drinking habits of men as opposed to the drinking habits of women. And where did where did they drink or, or where are the, all these differences? Well, I mean, there was one study, Elaine, at, uh, in around the mid-1830s from uh, an investigative committee of the uh, British Parliament called, the, well, it was affectionately known as the Drunken Committee. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so I don't know whether the committee were drunk or the people they were investigating were drunk. Um, 
but alcohol was present everywhere. It was uh, it, this was all across Ireland, Scotland, and England. It was present at uh, family baptisms, marriages, funerals, anniversaries, and holidays. Um, much the same as in twenty first century Ireland, England, and Scotland, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but so a lot of drinking at home. A lot it? of drinking at home, and. Uh, Unfortunately, they discovered that uh, there was a widespread availability of alcohol um, with one retail outlet serving alcohol for every 20 families throughout the kingdom, as they would have called it at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was drinking at home, there was drinking on the street, um, and there was great concern, obviously, among moral reformers and so forth about uh, the effect of drinking on the domestic sphere And so this is where a lot of these investigations went on to focus their their attention eventually. And you've mentioned there is this kind of difference in the way female drinkers are perceived to male drinkers. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, uh, there is a vast historical discussion actually around uh, inebriate or drunken women Um, in, in my research on this as you say I wrote the book I tend to use the word inebriate a lot um, just because I've seen it in front of my eyes for so many years. Mm -hmm. Um, Mothers in particular uh, were given a very hard time by society um, if their drinking caused the neglect and or say abandonment of children. Uh, Violence was a factor in the behaviour of drunken mothers. Uh, In many cases when if their action was directed at the husband or the children and that's it's really interesting because we're going to pick up on some of those reasons as well why some of our bad bridgets um were drinking as well yeah i mean uh as i said they the women they what they all shared whether they were mothers or single women or uh childless women what they all shared was their affront to societal norms which saw um, an Irish woman and mother as a good housekeeper, she should be moral, tidy and clean. And uh, I think it was the historian Carolyn Connolly who said that this was a challenge to what historians have described uh, as the 19th century Victorian ideal of the docile, delicate woman happy in her life of deference and submission um, informed by the rhetoric of the Irish church as well as by literature so this was never more obvious than when a woman took her drunkenness out of the private sphere of the household and we can clearly see as well from from our bad Bridget research that it wasn't only men who were drinking but also women too and it was really surprising the numbers of Irish women we found who were arrested or put in prison for being drunk and disorderly or or had problems with alcohol that led to crimes yeah it's really incredible and i think some of these the issues that connor have, has mentioned are kind of um coming up we can see these in the us as well so so we're seeing that alcohol um in our records alcohol was involved in at least 50% of the the crimes that irish women are actually in prison for um in boston new york and toronto across the 19th century and there is we mentioned this at, at the beginning of the podcast there is clearly this kind of long history of the Irish being associated with alcohol and being involved in the drink trade. Um, and in New York between 1840 and 1860, nearly half of the, the alcohol trade um, is in Irish hands. So so like bars like um, McSorley's, Leanne, uh, that you mentioned. Absolutely. And as as um, Connor was talking about as well, where people are drinking, that women aren't 
in bars, but they're drinking at home and they were probably drinking on the streets. Uh, and this is why we see so many women been arrested for being drunk. They could be seen, they were visible, they were obvious, they were causing trouble as, as we've, we've heard. And as for the Irish abroad, it, you know, it talks about how they were missing home, that bars were social and political clubs and an escape from poverty that they lived in as well. Yeah, and, and like the poorer areas of the cities, they're going to be filled with bars and um, shops where you could buy a drink. Alcohol is so easy to get hold of. It's it's cheaper and actually it's cheaper in America than it had been in Ireland. Um, and this is one of the reasons given as to why Irish women are drinking so much. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you see, this is a description of some Irish women in the Fourth Ward in New York. In, in 1859 and it says in the basements appears one of those filthy bedraggled blear-eyed half-drunken Irish women such alone as long habits of drinking and the poverty of a city can produce every other shop is a drinking shop and in some streets each house seems a brothel so so essentially what you're saying is there's a particular type of Irish woman she looks like this she spent years maybe drinking and living in these areas surrounded by poverty and and prostitution and alcoholism absolutely and you see lots of descriptions like this from charity workers or reformers who describe the Irish as drunken we have a child protection agent who was sent to an Irish woman's house in 1908 and and this is what um, he said the child was miserable looking woman about 35 to 40 man about five years older both smelled as if they had been drinking oh, for God. six months. They looked like Irish people. Oh, wow. That's a bit harsh. So it's nearly like implying that being drunk and being Irish is pretty much the same thing. And we, we kind of see how, in a way, Irish people themselves or some Irish people have, have sort of embraced this stereotype. And our absolutely fabulous resident actor, Siobhan McSweeney, um, is going to read us an article um, from the New York Times. And this one is entitled An Amusing Female Inebriate. You hear again, said the presiding justice, as Maggie Smith, a character familiar to the Washington Place police court, presented herself at the railing. Yes, Your Honour, replied the woman in a trembling tone as she unsuccessfully endeavoured to shed a few unrepentant tears. Well, Maggie, said the justice persuasively, don't you think it's about time for you to sign the pledge? I can't, Your Honour replied the woman with a remarkable effort at pathos. I've got the asthma and must drink. I'm afraid you're a dissolute woman, Maggie. No, Your Honour, rejoined the prisoner with some spirit. I'm an Irish woman. Well, said the justice, smiling, you're a woman anyway. No, I ain't, insisted the prisoner with increased emphasis. I'm a girl, twenty-seven years old. A ripple of laughter among the spectators followed this reply, and the justice signed the commitment. And Maggie was removed to the institution where she will be afforded ten days of seclusion to make up her mind whether to profit by the justice's suggestion and sign the pledge, or continue to relieve her asthma with strong drink, rendering herself liable to repeated imprisonment by imbibing too much of the alcoholic medicine. So, so while these women obviously had really serious problems with alcohol, I think some of these are also great because they show how these women are challenging authority. They're able to speak for themselves or to shout for themselves. And so I really like this newspaper description of Ellen Price. She's, she's in Toronto in 1865. So it's Ellen Price, 24, Irish, drunk as usual. She appeared with a flaming red feather in her hat and her face coloured by the use of alcohol. 
Ellen had been drunk and disorderly in the street at 3.15am and was sent to jail for 60 days, singing the rocky road to Dublin as she went out. <laughs> it's a brilliant image, isn't it? This woman singing as she's been taken down to the cells. Um, and the fact that we find out that she's got a friend with her too, and that's something that we see quite a bit mm. when Irish women have been yeah. arrested, that you've got a group of women all drinking together, all causing trouble together on the streets and all sort of arrested as a big group. And one of the other things I think is really interesting about it as well, that you get all sorts of women of all kind of different ages that are sort of intergenerational yeah. drinking session. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's another great newspaper report from Toronto in 1865. And I was reading this one the other day. And, and I think actually they must have had a court reporter who's really vivid in their descriptions um, of women coming through. A harder, more uncivilized and depraved looking set of abandoned women never appeared before the court than a crowd of eleven who were taken off the garrison common on Saturday night. Sin and whiskey were written in the faces of every one of them, being fifty percent worse looking than the commonest stargazers. Margaret McCormick, eighty, Irish, who, with spasmodic fits of laughter, enjoyed her elevation in the dock. Julia Tracy, 20, Irish, to whom temperance, honesty, and industry were a thing of the past. Elizabeth Stamford, 28, Irish, who, with a red comforter around her head, kept telling the other birds that Pea soup and half a pound of bread was the jail dinner allowance for that day. Alice Thompson, 28, Canadian, and Margaret Howard, 21, Irish, both women who had repeatedly promised the magistrate that they would turn over a new leaf, but whose thoughts of reform had long since been sent to washing in the rag bad of oblivion, and which had not yet been returned. Catherine Glynn, 20, Irish, a frail one who will look to better advantage in the never-wear-outable uniform of the jail than in the tattered rags she had on her back. Margaret Armstrong, 24, Irish, the woman who was positive that they would all be tried together and sent down as all were for 60 days each. And you get such... Great descriptions here. I think these are amazingly vivid picture of these women all in a group, all drinking together and all clearly repeat offenders though. Yeah. Some of them though were quite, you know, quite young to have been, been before the court so much. Um, I wonder if Margaret McCormick, who I don't think yeah, has any she, relation. Of course she would jump out, did she? <laughs> um, who was 80. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, I wonder if she was the ringleader. She's mixing with all these kind of 20 somethings. She's clearly finding the whole thing very funny. She's not bothered about no, being no. in court at all. And and what about Elizabeth Stanford? She knows <laughs> what the meal is in prison that day. She's obviously she's familiar with the menu or she has asked um, somebody about what is on the menu. Um, but there is, you know, we're kind of laughing about, about these, you know, really vivid um, examples. But there is a, a kind of a, a sad angle to this yeah, too, because like in reality, Maybe she's familiar with the menu because this might be the only chance these women had to get fed, to get clothes, to have a roof over their heads. These are women who are going in and out of prison all the time. What does their home look like? Do they have a home? They're often in prison for a couple of days, out for another couple um, and in again. And, and just where are they going? 
when they're not in prison. Yeah, it, it does raise a lot of questions about what what kind of life for these women was like. Um, and one of the things as well that we see from, from that example with all those women drinking together is this idea as well that there's a social aspect to this. All these people, people sort of together in, in one group. Um, and some of the... Um, in one of the annual reports of the Women's Prison Association, which was uh, an organisation which um, worked with women in prison and set up a halfway house to, to try and look after them um, when they'd left prison, tries to explain drunkenness amongst Irish women. And, and this is what it says, and it's really interesting about all the reasons they give for why they think Irish women drink. And it says, they're led astray at first by the social element of the Irish, by an inherited appetite by bad company, by the thousand influences and temptations that beset the ignorant and neglected, by the brutal treatment and desertion of husbands, by wrong disappointment and despair. Mm. And that idea of bad company or or being led astray, we see that a lot. It's sort of blaming other people and maybe trying to convince people in the institution or in the prison, you know, when, when maybe there's a bit of agency that the women have there, you know, maybe they're saying, I'm a really good person, but, but it was my friends or the bad company. They led me astray. It's sort of like, oh, those big girls, they made me do it, isn't it? <laughs> it is absolutely like that, trying to, to say that it's somebody else's fault. And there's some other reasons as well why why women turn to drink that were, were listed there before. And often we do see those problems with husbands, that women are deserted, that they're widowed, that they've been suffering domestic abuse, that they've just got generally a really horrible home situation. And if you've got no support around to help you, you know, you can't go back home to your parents' mm-hmm. house like you might have done if, if yeah. you were at home in Ireland. They're, yeah, it's just really like, it's heartbreaking yeah. stories, isn't it? Yeah. It's just real despair. It absolutely is. And again, the, the Women's Prison Association in New York, which we mentioned just before, in their records, you see lots of examples about women who have, who have come maybe to their halfway house and have offered up these really sort of often really tragic mm. stories about why they're there. Um, we have, this is in, from 1848, a Julia McGarvin who hadn't seen her husband for eight years. She'd lost five children, so she'd, they, they died. Uh, and drinking was described as her besetting sin. Um, and another woman called Catherine Ryan, who also came into the home in 1848, she was only 24. She was already a widow of two years and had lost two children. Her mother was in Ireland and she had no friends in America. And I suppose with all of those sad stories, we also have to say that, of course, there were women who neglected or they abused or abandoned their own children. Um, and alcohol was part of the picture there um, too. Like um, one example I found in Boston, Mary Burns, and she's described as a victim of intemperance. Um, she left her job as a servant and and when she left, she left her five-year-old daughter behind her. Um, Gosh, you know, and her, her yeah. employer said she really doubted that the mother was actually ever going to show up again. Goodness, that's, I mean, that's really quite extreme yeah. case, isn't it, as well? And there's another example from the um, NYS PCC in New York um, when they visited a, a Mary Rooney in 1880 and she said to them, of course, she never drank. Mm. Um, but clearly the agent didn't didn't believe her and, and said that her dissipated face and unsteady gait told oh, a wow. different tale. So actually saying she's drunk at the time. It's essentially, yeah, her face and that she was wobbling, obviously. But along with her husband, she was charged with child neglect and ended up in jail for four months. 
Now, interestingly, her husband only received 10 days in prison because apparently he had previous good character, um, which may mean that she didn't have previous mm. good character. But but also probably too, as a mother, she's considered to be more responsible for her children than he was. And this is one of the things that's really common in, in, in Ireland, um, as well as in America, that women who drank, as we've heard, were often viewed more harshly than men. And I suppose in a way that's something that maybe hasn't changed. Like if we think about how the media reports female behaviour in comparison to male behaviour. Absolutely. And when you see the criticism that female celebrities or, or women who are in the public eye get as opposed to what men get, you know, women behaving in a way that's considered badly will be regarded very differently to men doing exactly the same things. And I suppose... In the past, um, you know, if we're thinking about alcohol, the fear is that if women drank, it's going to bring um, shame and disgrace. And, and like Connor was saying, um, that happened in Ireland, I suppose it's like, you know, the, that these women wouldn't be able to look after their families. There's big concern for the future of the family, the future of the nation, um, both in Ireland um, and in the, in the U.S., I mean, and publicly, you just don't get the same criticism for men. Um, you know, men drinking is a release, it's an escape. There are lots of other reasons that could explain their behaviour and, and, and drinking and their bad behaviour. Um, I love this quote from Archbishop Lynch, who was the Catholic Archbishop of Toronto, and this is from 1875. And he explained it saying that, um, that the Irish people do not drink more than others, but their blood is so hot <laughs> and their nature so fervid and exuberant that adding it to the fire of alcohol, the Irishman becomes more unreasonable than men <laughs> of other more plodding temperaments. So it's this Irish fiery temperament that can explain it all. Not not that they're drinking mm -hmm. more. And alcohol permeates so much about Bridget. It's blamed for so much. It's the cause of so many of our women ending up in prison or ending up arrested or before the courts. And and I suppose you can kind of see why it's something people turned to. You know, it's to numb pain, to forget, to socialise, to have a bit of a laugh. And and if the alcohol is cheap and it's available and everyone else is doing it, um, and the stereotype is just self perpetuating, isn't it? And Leanne, you're looking at me with that look in your eyes. <laughs> Don't know what you mean. <laughs> this podcast business is thirsty work. I know, you're looking for a drink after all that. So join us next time when we'll be doing the podcast that we said we wouldn't do. Um, and that is the murder one. This Bad Bridget podcast was funded by Queen's University Belfast and Ulster University. It was written and presented by Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormick. Edited and produced by Colm Heatley at QUB consultation provided by Alan Hall and with special thanks to Siobhan McSweeney, Marty Maguire and Connor Reedy. Original artwork by Ashley Neal at PhD Cartoon, original music provided by Francisca Schroeder and Katrina Gribben and additional post-production provided by John Darcy. <laughs> <laughs>